Hi all, and welcome to this Dynasty Fantasy Football Show. I'm CJ Friel, and I post under that name on Reddit. Over the past few years, I have been posting various rankings at several points in the process of the NFL draft cycle, and this show will serve as sort of a primer for the prospects of the 2024 NFL Fantasy Draft in, uh, as far as the four major fantasy positions. Uh, I have done some recorded shows before, but never on my own, not for a while, and I also do not consider uh, editing to be my field or expertise. In fact, I'm actually recording the beginning last because I had some issues changing over software and uh, quite frankly don't know what I'm doing. So uh, do reach out and give me any feedback about quality, particularly uh, if anything is uh, overwhelmingly distracting because those are things I'm going to want to pay attention to and know about. Uh, that also gives me the opportunity to both mention that timestamps are posted alongside this file as well as mentioning some minor mistakes in data. Uh, to be very clear, uh, all the takeaways are uh, what I intended them to be. In, it, it's just that there are certain points there that the data read off my notes was a little bit incorrect or I just kind of flubbed something, right? So the first time was with running back draft capital and that is actually clarified in the postscript. So just know that my numbers are a little off there. And I also just kind of messed up JJ McCarthy's birthday by a couple months, but I won't go into that because it's really just it's two months and it doesn't matter that much. On that note, because this show is so long, it makes sense to get right into important points of the process. And I will also say that in terms of this show itself, as I'm myself listening to more and more dynasty content, I find that a lot of these early ranking shows uh, are spending a lot of time telling you how much we don't know, uh, how much we have yet to learn, uh, how much will change over the amount of time. And while I think that that's important to know, as in like everybody needs to know that, I also don't think that's something that we really need to spend a whole lot of time talking about. I'm going to assume that most people listening to this show should generally be aware of the fact that there are a lot of things changing. And while mock drafts can be in a minor way predictive, uh, particularly if you're looking at the right informed sources or only people who work on predictive mock drafts, uh, it's also important to recognize that there is a vast difference between you know a mock draft and when things actually happen. So of course things are going to change, but I don't really feel the need to spend too much time on it other than saying just that. Uh, I think sometimes maybe it's a way of people getting ahead of it or being afraid that they're eventually going to be wrong on things. I'm going to openly admit that there's going to be things that are wrong on this show. Of course there are. This is a predictive early show. There's going to be a, quite a few things that are ultimately going to be wrong. I'm going to try to provide the best possible information I believe to be available at this time to give a background to these prospects, right? So on to the methodology. I think the first thing and the main thing to talk about in the concept of methodology is how you see the dynamic between film and analytics. Uh, some people consider these opposing forces, whereas most people, I believe, who at least do this at a high level, generally speaking, take both and combine them in some fashion. Uh, on my side of things, analytics is pretty straightforward. It's going to be any data-driven analysis that has proven over history to represent some kind of value. Uh, and I'm not going to spend too much time talking about the different things that could be because I think film is the one that needs to be talked about a little bit more and is a little bit more subjective. Now, there are also positional specific things for both of these, and those will be addressed 
uh, before I get into those specific positions at those points. But on a general note, it's important to think about film as what a couple different things that it could be, right? The, the majority of what you're doing when you're watching film, maybe 80, 90%, is based on a concept of traits, right? What does somebody do particularly well? Size, speed, explosiveness, all kinds of different things. Again, different from position to position, but really a, a concept of traits. And for me, I like to think that what I'm doing is something close to a, a consensus grade of traits, right? So if you're listening to this show and you're wondering uh, how I come to my opinions on what traits are, while some of that is from watching it myself, you should also know that I try to never be on an island, right? I try to found my opinions, uh, or at least as I'm making my opinions, try to find others that have said or are saying similar things. And by doing this, I feel that I am at least, you know, maybe these traits are not accurate. Maybe they will not lead to success, but I think they're the best possible information I can come up with. And they're just supported, I guess is what I'm trying to say, by people who have been doing this longer, uh, who make more money doing this, who are far more popular doing this, and things of that nature. So it's not just me the vast majority of the time. There are other things you can see on film, such as, you know, consistent consistency, down-to-down things, how does somebody block, uh, you know, how does somebody approach their position, but is typically not going to be as important, particularly for getting people on the right days, right? Analytics and traits are going to get most people on the right general tiers, days, areas, those kind of things. So the majority of this discussion is going to be based on analytics and traits. Occasionally something might come up that might have to do with a a longer study of a single game film and consistency on a down-to-down basis, but those are going to be big things to lock us into uh, certain tier ranges, right? Uh, And so just getting into the first position that we have to talk about here, being the quarterback position, uh, the very first thing and the most important thing to talk about in terms of formatting difference is just that And I'm not going to spend too much time on this, but I generally don't believe that high-end draft capital should be spent in one quarterback leagues, even for exciting quarterbacks. Because, and this gets to the general rest of the position, but quarterback is a low hit rate position. It is not a good general proposition, but in super flex, because, you know, you have to start 24 of them, generally speaking. If you want three on your team, that's 36 if you're in a 12-team league, which doesn't actually exist. It's just a, a scary position that's hard to get to and then some of those floor outcomes you know like your couple seasons of a Jameis Winston like your couple seasons of a Mitchell Trubisky uh, like your couple seasons of a Daniel Jones I mean I know he is still the starter but uh, those outcomes can have more value in a super flex league uh, as a QB2 option than they would be as your only option as a quarterback one so there are some floor options that help a lot more in super flex leagues and so just because of this different dynamic if I am drafting highly in a one quarterback and and maybe I'm concerned about how you know in redraft leagues there's some trends that are drafting the earlier quarterbacks higher and higher I'm going to try to take that early first round pick and either take that alone or pair it with something else and trade for an established quarterback on the higher end of things Uh, those are going to be the players that uh, I feel like are going to be the better 
use of that draft capital at the quarterback position in a one quarterback league. Superflex is, I think, a little bit different because, again, especially with the higher draft capital guys, I think the floor outcomes get a little underrated because even though guys bust and we remember them as busting, they can still be solid for your team for a couple years in Superflex. And while that is not an ideal outcome, that is the kind of outcome that offsets the chance that you get a young Joe Burrow, a young Justin Herbert, uh, you know, a young Josh Allen, one of these guys, right? So that's that's the big difference between me. That is why I'm taking uh, quarterbacks at 101 in Superflex and basically any profile that I like at the premium positions of running back and wide receiver, I am taking over quarterbacks in a one quarterback league. And in fact, in one quarterback leagues, I'm more strongly likely to go at the end of a tier, right? So in a one quarterback league this year, I'm much more likely to end up with, say, the cheapest of the three quarterbacks, particularly because I find that sometimes in those leagues, only one guy or two guys get hyped, particularly one guy. And they that one guy can sometimes... Uh, you know, carry the hype for the rest of the class, right? So in this past season, it was Anthony Richardson who kind of carried the hype for the rest of the class, allowing uh, C.J. Stroud and Bryce Young to be much better potential values in uh, one quarterback leagues, even though one of them, only one of them right now, looks like an actual value, at least at this point. And then in terms of the draft capital at the position, uh, while every single position of first-round pick is, is a varying degree of a good thing and there are some caveats in later positions that will address you know maybe why there's maybe some more hits or some more misses rather than people think in those areas but at quarterback more than any other position I never really feel the need to bump players up unless they get truly premium draft capital now to be clear that doesn't necessarily mean that quarterbacks drafted outside say the top 16 or 20 are going to be ranked lowly just in and of itself but if I don't like the quarterback let's just say that I don't really feel the need to bump them up to put it in uh, maybe a better example to this to kind of visualize it when Kenny Pickett goes 20 and Will Levis goes 33 those differences don't matter I think to me as much as a lot of other people I think people don't necessarily correctly right where it starts really falling off exponentially in the first round necessarily and while those are different draft capital you know, ranges, the biggest thing is that they both indicate to me that the player is unlikely to be a high-level talent, but likely to get some kind of opportunity. And we've seen that with both Pickett and and Levis. So, you know, that that range between, say, the 20th pick and, say, like the 35th, 40th pick to me is a lot more similar. And in that range, you know, I had Will Levis probably ranked around my mid-second round. I didn't love Levis. So, obviously, if I liked the prospect, he'd be a little bit higher. But, you know, that's around the range that I feel uh, that, you know, quarterbacks that get that later first-round capital should get unless you really like the prospect in and of himself. To whereas, you know, the, the real draft capital range that you're trying to target in quarterback is those first three picks, those first five picks, those first 10 picks as premium as it gets, because this is the position more than any other position, pretty much in any other sport. I mean, I watch a lot of sports and there is no quarterback. It is the premium position if, if teams are taking the guy early, it's because they believe he can be a franchise quarterback and are willing to invest in him. And if they're not taking it early, it's because all 32 teams likely have some degree of skepticism. Because while, especially in the earlier picks, only one team passes on a on a player, the opportunity for every team to trade up does kind of make it like uh, all 
32 teams are passing on that player. And then, you know, like I said earlier, I am very aware that that mock drafts are going to change. Even the ones right before, not mock drafts are going to change, but the draft itself is going to change what we're saying in mock drafts, right? I'm very aware of that. That said, I think one of the problems in trying to find anything out of mock drafts is that people put them all together. And some people don't have sources. Some people are just saying what they believe. Some people are just saying what they would do, which is a very different thing from a mock draft. Some people might just, you know, think that Bo Nix is the best player in the draft and put him 101, but they might not actually believe that's going to happen. I try to filter mock drafts to create a, a consensus that I am interested in and that I just follow along the process to try to just have some uh, some information that it seems like insiders have or is being suggested to them. Again, might not be right, but just uh, so how I build this consensus is only one mock draft for a company, uh, only major companies that have trust to have sources and things like this. And then I do try to pick the mock drafter who I believe to be the most associated uh, with good information from that website, right? So uh, long story short, the early consensus that helps to form this first tier of quarterbacks is Caleb Williams. Caleb Williams at one in every single mock draft that I have looked at so far. Uh, Drake May is consensus most often at number two, but sometimes falls down to number three. When he falls down to number three, Jaden Daniels is at two. Uh, Jaden Daniels is most commonly at three, though I did have him falling down to eight once. But as we get further into the process, that actually seems like something that's happening less and less. The three quarterbacks in the three in the first three picks is becoming a fairly frequent thing. I am handling all of these players as a tier, even though Caleb Williams would be my clear 101 at this point because sometimes you know clear doesn't always mean that the value gap is very large it just means that i have a a clear opinion of which one it would be at the end of the day so when you really think about fantasy the goals are the higher end outcomes and you know, the difference between Harrison and neighbors is probably not going to be small, honestly, at the end of the day, it's probably going to, or or Williams and May, it's probably going to be big. One's probably going to be, even if both are successful, one's probably going to be substantially more successful. You know, just think about the way that a lot of people saw Young and Stroud as similar, like regardless of who somebody put over the other. um, And I wasn't more of a young guy myself going into last year, they were seen as very similar by a lot of people and the result at this point does not seem similar at all so that's kind of why I'm putting these players in the same tier even though I would have a clear decision to be made in these tiers so just getting into Caleb Williams first the off-field conversations around Caleb Williams are kind of the first thing that that jump off the page in terms of like what other people are talking about I just have not been able to find myself finding viable, well-sourced information that makes me concerned about things like this. When it comes to things like this, I am looking for people who know more to have the same opinions. And so far what I've found in Williams is the people who know the most are worried the least about the off-field concerns and character concerns. And so at this point, I'm going to move in lockstep with that and not be too worried uh, about the off-field things and even discuss them very much here. The other couple things to mention with Williams, his last year was his worst year by a lot of standards, but it's also important to remember that in this age of college football, where players are starting less, uh, starting less often, starting less early, Caleb Williams was a 
two and a half ish year starter. He he broke out in that Red River game for Oklahoma. He has thousand to twelve hundred plus dropbacks at the Power Five level. Uh, he started playing you know co- top flight college football in that in that freshman season. Uh, so you know there's a lot to like throughout the whole three year history, especially if you if you look throughout it and not just in 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 the worst season, which is fairly his last. And then there are a lot of fumbles too. That's something that you'll you'll see a lot of people discuss. Uh, the number itself, I think, is going to be used to inflate the problem. Does he have a small fumbling issue or even a fumbling issue without the word small? Probably, uh, but the number doesn't really matter all that much. There's a lot of guys who fumble uh, double digits in college football um, for, for like a season, um, and, and some of them do have a slight fumbling problem, but it's also important to remember that uh, as people who are in fantasy, we usually only see fumbles as the fumble lost number and this is you know like for example there's a play i believe against san jose state where he drops a snap and then picks up the ball and throws a touchdown now regardless of what happens at the end of that play that's not really even a ball security issue unless you believe he cannot catch a snap that's just kind of randomness if you're just dropping a shotgun snap right on your feet it's more than likely going to be recovered by your team. I'm not trying to underplay it. Like, I would never say that if I was a coach, I guess let's put it that way. But it's important to remember that not all fumbles are created equally. Uh, Caleb Williams is mobile, and he makes the wow throws about as much as anybody. You know, we're going to, more than anybody, we're about to talk about Drake May, and Drake May does have more big-time throws uh, by, by someone like PFF standard, but the truly highest-level throws that maybe only he can make those kind of things that are on Caleb Williams tape more than any other quarterback in this class. And and that's why, and again, this position that as discussed before is a hard hit rate position generally where players should generally probably be seen as somewhat unlikely to be successful. If we're being realistic about the past and future of the position, I like to look at what Caleb Williams does how well he's played at some of the higher levels of college football, and that's who I'm. I would get behind at the 101 in the Superflex League, and as my quarterback one in all league formats. Uh, Drake May is still my quarterback too, and it largely comes down to general philosophies on player development. Um, you know, there's obviously reasons why he's to himself, but just talking between him and Jaden Daniels, um, you know. Applying context is the hardest thing to do in college football. Uh, Jaden Daniels would legitimately not be allowed to play college football in 2023 if not for COVID-19 changing eligibility rules. Uh, That was also the first year that he was an elite quarterback pretty much in his entire career. He's been good several years. He's taken care of the football. He's mobile. He's he's been accurate uh, in terms of completion percentage a few times in his career, but he has never been elite until his fifth year, which is a year that typically speaking, without the COVID-19 eligibility rules, he would not even be allowed to play in college football. When you uh, compare that to Drake May, Drake May was one of the most elite, almost consensus, probably consensus top five quarterbacks in college football as a true sophomore. That's his second year. He was once again in that same category in his third year. And uh, again, unlike Jaden Daniels, Drake may had two different offensive coordinators, the second of which is not a highly regarded offensive coordinator, generally speaking, specifically for generating things like this and, and quarterback success and passing success over time, right? So so Mike Denbrock was Jaden Daniels' offensive coordinator, uh, and Jaden Daniels broke out in his second year 
with Mike Denbrock. And Mike Denbrock uh, notably worked with Desmond Ritter at Cincinnati, helping his draft stock into day two. Drake May has never worked with somebody uh, who... Well, Drake May worked with Phil Longo for one year, uh, in his sophomore year, and then Phil Longo left. Phil Longo's obviously worked with, you know, Sam Howell right before him. Uh, But the point is that Drake May had two different offensive coordinators, and the second one in the year that's been more scrutinized for him uh, was less highly regarded. And then if you even extend this to other people, I mean, uh, Penix had Kalen DeBoer, who's now going to be the head coach of Alabama. Uh, uh, Caleb Williams had Lincoln Riley. You, you really get the sense that Drake May is the one quarterback in this group that that did not have a good situation around him, specifically if you include quarterbacks. Uh, coaching as a part of situation i'm not saying necessarily to be clear that it was bad bad even though there are things on film and you know especially like in the wide receiver room and and finishing out routes and running through things that that you know make you go what's going on here with north carolina but it's definitely one of it's definitely you can look at all the other situations and say these are better these are much better drake may had a lot of things going against him that the other players didn't have and you know He's going to naturally draw uh, comparisons to Sam Howell, you know, that powder blue uniform um, that North Carolina wears. Um, but it's it's important to distinguish a few different things. Substantially better tools, right? Both had big, big-time throw numbers, uh, but Mays were better. Um, he, he led the league in the category two years in a row in the regular season. If you're adding the postseason, Pennix did pass him. Uh in the postseason, but Penix passed him with three extra games and a lower rate per game. Uh, he's also, and I think this is one of the biggest ones, he is far more natural at avoiding pressures. Uh, that is not something that was in Howell's game in the NFL. It was not something that was in Howell's game in college football. He took a lot of sacks per pressure. There are, you know, like Drake May took a lot of sacks in his second year, but he was pressured an obscene amount of time, and his time to throw wasn't particularly high, so you can put a good amount of that on the offensive line fairly and in, in the analytical data. Uh, and then on top of that, the way college football calculates rushing yards for quarterbacks include sacks it's one of the dumbest things college football does it is not done in the nfl obviously but it it ruins all the numbers when you're uh, analyzing them and so it's just important to note that in that second year drake may had almost 900 rushing yards uh if you're taking out the sacks so you won't see that number if you're looking at like sport ref but that is the actual number if you're looking at it from an nfl perspective and how nfl stats things uh he had almost 900 rushing yards so i don't think he's any anywhere near a 750-yard rusher or something like that at the NFL level. But he is in that same way that he avoids pressure more naturally than Sam Howe. As much as Sam Howe was an effective runner, Drake May is much more natural at when he chooses to stay in the pocket and when he chooses to leave. I'm not saying he's perfect, and there were a lot of misses on the tape this year that people have been pulling apart a lot more, and that's why you're seeing Drake May and some mock drafts fall down to three. But at the end of the day, there's just just a lot to like. There's a lot of big-time throws. There's a lot of sack evasion. There's a lot of natural instinct in the pocket. And importantly, there's a lot of situational bias that other players had to positively affect them uh, to to have more wide receivers that are in the NFL, to have better coaching staffs that have supported more people that have gone into the NFL, things like this that that Drake May simply did not have. Um, So uh, these development curve things, these... Uh, these situational things, uh, these big time throws, that that is why for me, Drake May is the quarterback too. Uh, And then last in this 
tier would be Jaden Daniels. Uh, I do think he has a viable quarterback one argument because of his rushing ability. He is the quarterback three for me, but... Uh, again, that's why I'm tiering these similarly, uh, or the same here, because I, I don't think it would be unfair for somebody to take Jaden Daniels over the other two guys. And I think one thing to keep in mind with Jaden Daniels is a lot of things with late breakouts are hard to uh, frame because so many things with late breakouts often come down to situation and narrative. Now, this is a bit narrative, but while situation is completely subjective, there are objective things that have happened to Jaden Daniels in the last five years that I think teams will be able to buy into and kind of clinch their teeth on or however you want to put it to really uh, lock down the idea that something changed that they can that they can feel is tangible and that's the physical development right uh, Jaden Daniels was 170 pounds as as a freshman he is probably over 200 to 210 uh, in that range now he is still slim but you can tell the difference on film you know you can hear guys talk about him on tape going back two three years and they say he's not that fast he's just kind of quick that has changed. He is much more explosive. He gets to the edge much better. He gets around the edge much better. Uh, there's a couple highlights in the Alabama film where you can see how he is pulling now as a runner uh, in ways he was not doing before. And so when you can really, uh, you know, a lot of times it's it's less tangible, right? Even like someone like Joe Burrow, he was incredible, but you have, you have, you have Chase, you have Jefferson, you have Joe Brady, who was getting a lot of credit at the time. And it's hard to find it to be really tangible outside of just really breaking down the film, the tape, and things like that. I think Jaden Daniels, uh, and obviously Joe Burrow did go number one, but I think Jaden Daniels, what people are going to be comforted by is is the tangible nature of the physical development. And so I think that's what's going to help him a lot. And, and the big thing that really changed for him this year was those big time throws and usually or or how they are supposed to be graded by pff is that they are high difficulty throws and you did see that on tape because as good as malik neighbors and brian thomas jr are Jaden daniels was still a quarterback who in previous seasons would underthrow a wide open wide receiver or you know and by which you know maybe the wide receiver still makes the catch but has now been uh, slowed down to the point where the defense catches up and now it's no longer as big of a play. Jane Daniels was dropping it in the bucket this year. I mean, that's just what he was doing. I'm not saying he was perfect, but the accuracy went leaps and bounds up. And so when you combine that with the tangibility of the physical development, I think that's where you're going to see teams uh, really get excited. And when you include the rushing upside, that is so important in this specific game, it's, it's easy to see why people are going to get excited uh, about Jaden Daniels. Uh, and so I genuinely love all of these first three prospects collectively, particularly for fantasy with their rushing capabilities. I would favor this trio uh, collectively to uh, Young, Stroud, and Richardson. And, and now, if they don't all get top five draft capital, that'll change, but let's assume that they do. Uh, I would, in a startup league, let's say, I would value them comparatively, r relatively, slightly higher than I was valuing the uh, other three quarterbacks the previous years, uh, or the previous year. In many ways, this class seems 
like it would be similar, at least from a pre-draft perspective, to the 2021 class. You know, that's the class that had Lawrence, Wilson, Lance go top three, uh, Fields at 11, Mac Jones at 15. Uh, and in particular, 2022 was also seen as a lower-end class going into the draft, right? Uh, you know, Sam Howell, uh, Spencer Rattler, these guys did have credit, but they were not seen as being quite as highly valued as prospects. That is probably even more so this year, uh, true to this year. I'm not saying that the players are not viable or good or have the chance to improve or these things, but I have a hard time believing that anyone who does perspective rankings or Devi or anything like that projects the tiers in the 2025 quarterback class to be anything like they have been in the last two years going into the next season. I have uh, a tier one of four quarterbacks, uh, and just not to confuse, I won't mention the names, for 2025, uh, and I consider that basically a a tier B to an empty tier A. Uh, I like to talk towards trajectories a lot. Obviously, players do improve. We just talked about Jaden Daniels, but you know, Jaden Daniels brought this class up in terms of quarterbacks to a place where it was spectacular. Having a Jaden Daniels in next year's class might be necessary to have one high-end quarterback prospect. So those are very different things, and so I think that it has a lot of potential to help. Uh, somewhere between one to three or one to five of the next quarterbacks I'm going to talk about in terms of their draft capital. Those quarterbacks being uh, the first tier, uh, which is Bo Nix, uh, Michael Penix Jr., and J.J. McCarthy. Uh, and then the second tier, uh, or the following tier, which would be Spencer Rattler uh, and Michael Pratt. Um, now, I know I didn't necessarily read them off in this order, but J.J. McCarthy would be uh, my quarterback four. He is a very controversial player. Uh, but if, you know, there seems to be players that the social media aspects, the consensus seem to dislike more than the NFL. I'll say that. And if J.J. McCarthy is the Will Levis of this class, I would much rather bet on McCarthy. Um, you know, Levis has more raw tools, but I like where McCarthy is at in his developmental curve, developmental cycle, like whatever you want to call it. Um, I'm very big on on mapping the development of prospects. I think it is fair to be uh, more to scrutinize more uh, what Bo Nix and Michael Penix do when they have been, and even Jaden Daniels do, when they have been in college football for five, five, and six years. Um, these are also players who, uh, around September 1st, when the, the league year starts, or when the new season starts, will be 23 and a half to 24 and a half years of age. J.J. Uh, uh, McCarthy will be closer to 21 and a half. And, you know, the one thing that I would just say in the most simple way is that. You can say whatever you want about what J.J. McCarthy did not do in this year, and it is perfectly valid. But J.J. McCarthy also objectively got better from the year before. So why are you? Why is anybody going to believe that that is going to stop now? He got much better from the time he was playing at college football at 19 to the time he was playing college football at 20. He turns 21 in March. So as much as there are things to point to and say, I wish I was getting more out of this guy on film uh, in a number of ways. I wish there were. I wish Michigan was asking him to do more. At the end of the day, there's not like a flaw that you can point to and say this is the reason he's not going to succeed. He has good size. He has good a uh, good arm. He has a good high velocity arm. Uh, he's mobile. I think some people go back and forth about how fast he is, but he's very 
He's very change of direction oriented, which is very important for a quarterback. Uh, Daniel Jones might be able to to beat J.J. McCarthy in a foot race, but J.J. McCarthy much more easily gets into a track that can be uh, successful or get into a lane that can be successful on a, on a down-to-down basis because of the way he changes directions and moves. He's also been very good at avoiding pressure. Like a lot of... Uh, the Penn State gets blown. The Penn State game gets blown up a lot because he didn't throw the ball a lot. But as someone who watched that game live, the right tackle could not handle Chop Robinson, and importantly, J.J. McCarthy was successfully running for his life. And I think that's why people didn't notice it as much, uh, especially if you're just casually watching the game, because J.J. McCarthy wasn't getting sacked, but he was getting his right tackle destroyed and having to deal with that and both seeing reps like that and also looking at things like his pressure to sack ratio gives me uh you know a a good amount of confidence that he is a player who can continue to grow because there aren't these things that are necessarily holding him back i don't know how good he is at full field reads that's the number one question that you have for basically any quarterback going into the NFL. I don't know how good any of these guys are going to be on full field reads, and that's a very fair knock, but J.J. McCarthy just doesn't have red flags for me, and so for a guy who has not yet turned 21 and who got a lot better from 19 to 20 and who has started a good amount of games at a fairly high level of college football, I know Michigan's schedule has been uh bad outright bad for being particularly a big 10 schedule the last two years but he he has played at a high level and and done very well uh at that high level with what he's been asked to do and so that is why jj mccarthy uh is my quarterback for and i think it goes back to the draft capital thing too where there's a difference between a top 10 pick at quarterback and a first round pick i don't think jj mccarthy should be a top 10 pick or very close to it but i do think he's worth a first round pick in the first round you get a lot of guys at the end of the first round you get a lot of guys that bust you get a lot of guys who are offensive tackles in positions like that who are being overdrafted for for things like traits and skills. Quarterback is the most valued position in this game, and I absolutely think J.J. McCarthy is worth a late first-round pick. It's also worth noting, uh, just to transition between two quarterbacks, that J.J. McCarthy has been in the top 20 of three of the five mock drafts that I've closely looked at in terms of the sources that I've picked between, which is also true of Bo Nix. Michael Penix Jr., has not been in a single first round. I had two mock drafts that went beyond the first round, and he was drafted in the 40s in both, which implies he wasn't even one of the first picks in the second round. Maybe that's an overreaction to the Michigan game, but I also think there are things on Michael Penix's tape that look the worst under scrutiny. Scrutiny, I guess, is the best way to put it. Uh, the the accuracy in terms of ball placement can be erratic, and, and in particular, it's kind of this weird uh, dual-edged thing because Michael Penix is so good at avoiding sacks, which makes you think he's so good at everything revolved around pressure. But that's not really true because when he gets off his spot, the accuracy gets even worse you know, compared back to J.J. McCarthy. I really like the way J.J. McCarthy throws accurately on the run. Michael Penix, I think, has a couple more problems with keeping those mechanical things consistent in situations like this. And so that's kind of why I'm also starting to kind of join this crowd of getting more and more skeptical of Michael Penix. I mean, I went to college with Michael Penix. I'm not saying I knew him, obviously, but I was at IU at the exact same time Michael Penix was. I want nothing but the best for him. He's got a great arm, 
but uh, between the injury history and the ball placement issues and being a sixth year senior and and being able to pick apart some of these things you know i mean he, he was not great down the stretch in a way that people do not talk about that much he had a lot of low completion percentage games yes a lot of them had you know, excuses or bad weather or things like that. But at the end of the day, this guy played for Kalen DeBoer and had Roma Dunze, Jalen Polk, and Jalen McMillan as his three wide receivers. And you just can't fall off in your numbers for the entire last eight games of a season as a sixth-year senior. It's just, it's, it is it is such a detriment. It, everyone knows that you know that this is it. This is the last thing that you have to prove to the NFL. And I think low-key, not talked about too much, when you look at those stats in the last eight games of the season, Michael Penix's numbers were not good, uh, at least you know within that context. And I think that is important to know. Uh, and then you know, going to Bo Nix, Bo Nix, uh, you know, building on that, it's, it's seeming more and more likely going to that 2021 comparison with the five quarterback draft class that Bo Nix is kind of becoming the Mac Jones of this class potentially. Now, obviously Mac Jones is kind of a hot button name from the standpoint that he had a bad last year. I'm not trying to imply that just more of the draft capital association, but, but Bo Nix, uh, seems to be, uh, you know, he's getting steam and maybe that is just steam, but it's from a lot of legitimate sources, and there's a lot of positive things being said about Bo Nix. The one thing, Bo Nix is very simple to me. He got a lot better at Oregon, but we have a very simple thing to pinpoint for that, which is the A dot, which isn't to say that he didn't do great things outside of his depth target, uh, or that he didn't. It, there's a difference between not going downfield at all and not going downfield much. But there's also a, a difference between being great when you go downfield not a lot and being great when you go downfield more often, by which I just mean if you're not going downfield very often, it makes it more easy because the defense is preparing for different things, right? So I'm about to throw, and I know that might have been a little word soup, and I'm about to throw a few more numbers at you, but I'll, I'll summarize them in a bit. But the A dots for these quarterbacks, right? Drake May, 11. Michael Penix, 10 7. Uh, Daniels, 10 5. Uh, McCarthy, 9 4. Williams, 9 2. Bo Nix, 6.8, right? So put it in another way. Uh, May is in first. Williams is in fifth. Bo Nix is in sixth. The gap between first and fifth is much lower than the gap between fifth and sixth, at least, you know like a third lower. So the gap that Bo Nix is the lowest is very substantial. He did not throw the ball downfield compared to the rest of these prospects, but it does seem like people are, are falling for him. So, so just for the record, for my own grades, J.J. Uh, McCarthy is the one that I am confident I would feel at least somewhat comfortable with an NFL team taking in the first round, like if it was my team, uh, that I would feel somewhat comfortable getting J.J. McCarthy in like the pick 20, 25 range. Uh, Bo Nix and Michael Penix Jr., as of now, I don't have it that great. Maybe I'll get there. Maybe someone will talk me into Bo Nix in particular. But right now, I have four quarterbacks at that first round grade or above. 
with the fourth being J.J. McCarthy. And just to touch on one last reason for that, um, you know, I already did discuss the age, but just to put it into some comparative uh, context, I do have a running age list. I'll probably bring it up a few times. Uh, every time that uh, an age comes up in my research, which is you know most of the time, I keep it in a running age list. I also update it after the drafts to make sure it includes all players uh, from the first two days. Uh, it is only for the 2022, 2023, and 2024 classes, but I do have over 100 players on this list at this point. And J.J. McCarthy is the second youngest quarterback uh, behind only uh, behind only Anthony Richardson, uh, whereas Penix and Nix are two of the oldest quarterbacks behind only Jaron Hall and Hendon Hooker. Uh, so again, about that three-year age gap. Uh, it, it is a big deal into how to, uh, to project these guys moving forward. And then just really quickly, uh, obviously this is this is going on long, um, and it will continue probably to go on long as we handle two very significant positions after this. But I do think Michael Pratt and Spencer Rattler both deserve to be mentioned. Uh, Pratt, smaller school, lower level, dealt with injury this year. Those three things are not good for draft capital. But if you had asked me before the year who I ranked higher between Pratt, McCarthy, uh, Rattler, and uh, or excuse me, Pratt, McCarthy, Penix, and Nix, I probably would have said Pratt or McCarthy. I definitely would have had Pratt over Penix and Nix. And, you know, Spencer Rattler got a really bad rep at the end of his Oklahoma time, fairly or not. I don't know. That's not my place. But it does seem like he has largely silenced that kind of talk. And it's also important to remember that Spencer Rattler last year played at the highest level of college football in the SEC. And he did not have a good offensive line. That was a guy constantly running for his life. And so, you know, if if an NFL team gives these two guys a chance, I'm not saying I'm willing to draft them very highly, but I will be more intrigued, I guess I should say, than other quarterback seven or eights uh, in a respective class. I'm not really trying to hype up this class. I just genuinely, genuinely believe that Pratt and Rattler are very good for being the quarterback seven and eight of a class. And so that's all I have for the quarterbacks. Uh, you know, again, this is an underproduced, really not produced uh, product. And so I'm just taking a second here maybe as I transition from quarterbacks to running backs to just make it clear in case anybody is listening that that's what we're doing now so that it doesn't you know blend together. Um, so you know, the first thing to talk about with any position, again, is going to be some kind of positional specific things that go into uh, the scouting and the analytics at the position, as well as uh, what draft capital means to that specific position. So I'll start there. And historically, from my own research, and as well as from research of others, it's important to remember that running back is the position more than any other, where blindly drafting by capital as well as the players that you draft at that capital uh, is not a bad decision and will result in constant success right so there's been this pushback recently because uh, running backs get injured a lot that they're not worth certain picks at certain position at certain places and i think what people need to make sure that we remember in this is that it's more valuable to get a quarterback or wide receiver hit with your first round draft pick than it is to get a running back hit. But a running back hit is easier to get because the chances of the player just being uh, talented and getting the opportunity to use that talent when they're drafted within those first you know, 50, 55 picks is, is fairly significant and much significantly higher than the risks involved at the historical hit rates at, at 
basically the other three positions. Uh, so I did myself a draft capital study in terms of uh, day two capital uh, about a year ago. So it's a little outdated but not very outdated and in general what it came down to is again uh, within day two these top 50 picks hit at a rate that is pretty much higher uh, than any position like take take wide receiver in a comparison I don't want to get too deep into this because I will discuss it with the wide receivers but uh, there are a lot of zeros in wide receivers drafted in the first round between pick 16 and 32 there are far fewer complete busts at the running back position in the second round between picks 33 and say 74 I think that's the number that I ended up with when I did uh, my research a year ago. But so the point is that as much as uh, these running back profiles, if you've followed this class at all for basically the last six months or so, there's been a lot of negativity around running back. Um, and that negativity is something that I myself, in terms of grading individual prospects, have also gone along with. You know, I did a rising and fallers, risers and fallers piece throughout the year, and running backs were constantly written about in the fallers. But it's important to remember that all of these guys that go in the top 50 probably should go in the first round, really should go in the first round, not even probably. And a lot of the guys that go in the top 75 picks should really go in that late first, early second round range, even if we don't love the profiles on an individual level, right? So just to get into uh, a couple more specific numbers, uh, running backs drafted between 33 and 74 had at least one top 24 season, uh, 75% of the time. They also uh, were a you know a significant hit uh, between th- 35 to 25% of the time, which I judged by, I have a point system um, when I do things like this, where a top 24 season is one point and a top 12 season is two points. Uh, so basically 35% of the time, Wide, or running backs in this range got at least four points and 25% they got at least six points. So you got about as equal a chance of getting, say, two RB1 seasons and two RB2 seasons as you have getting a complete zero. So the fact that, you know, a really, really good outcome is about as likely as a zero and the middle tier outcomes are pretty solid at running back is different than any other position in recent history when it comes to this fairly high draft capital range. Uh, It does fall off maybe a little earlier than some people think, you know, around picks 90, 100. Those picks have not historically uh, hit as frequently yet as the day two picks a little bit before it. But, you know, in, in general, just the point is that the midpoint is higher. The chance of getting a zero is lower and the chance of getting a genuine hit is uh, like a like a player that you'll genuinely benefit from over several years is much higher. So again, if you're confident, and how confident you should be is always going to be debatable, in a wide receiver or quarterback, taking them and getting a hit at those positions is more valuable. Longevity, injury concerns that have been happening recently these are these are very fair. But if you're just judging like can I get a talent that I want with this pick? Running back is your best chance to get a talent that you want this pick, that that you're not going to be sitting looking at a player two years later and going, like, wow, I really thought they were good, and 
that didn't turn out the way I thought it would. They're, they're healthy, they're playing, they're just not that good. That's going to happen a lot more at the wide receiver and quarterback positions. On a more firm scouting note, uh, running back to me is more purely traits-driven positioned. Uh, so to put it in a layman way that might <laughs> frankly irritate some people based on how people respond to the concept of highlights, if there is one position you can viably scout primarily from just highlights, it is running back. And to be clear, you can't like watch one player and just say, wow, I think they're really good. I think that's the bigger flaw with watching highlights most of the time. You have to still you know, watch every player and judge the traits that you see. But if you're, if you're looking for these traits at running back, they carry the day uh, more than at any other position on their own. And so what traits am I looking for specifically, whether it be on a All-22, on a broadcast film, or on a highlight film, uh, to make it simple, burst, balance, and vision. Um, vision is probably the hardest to spot and going to be the most controversial, but it also might be the most important. You know, that's what gets tricky with variables. Some variables are, you know, easier to measure, but don't mean as much. Some variables mean more, but are harder to measure. Um, and that's kind of the difference between these here. Uh, vision is very important, but it is harder to measure as well. Burst and balance are actually pretty easy to measure. And that's why, generally speaking, I probably look for burst and balance more than anything else, because I have a confidence uh, in that I'm seeing it correctly. And so getting into the players themselves, I have a clear top tier of Trey Benson and Jonathan Brooks. Um, just those two. There's a couple other guys that uh, many others might put here. There's a couple other guys that other people put at running back one. Obviously, those will be discussed in a bit, but I want to talk about these two guys first. Troy Benson, excellent size and explosiveness, does have a little bit of work in the pass catching game, um, and in particular, he in particular, has one of the highest missed force tackles rate via PFF in, in recent memory. Um, the slow start to his career is both excusable and also kind of a concern because it was a fairly devastating knee injury. And so obviously, I, you know, I don't have any medical expertise, nor do I have any access to the medicals, um, but draft capital will be important in, stapping, in stamping uh, and improve, uh, uh, you know, the stamp of approval on the future of that knee. All right, so that's a big deal. Um, but it's also, you know, I don't know if it came from this or I don't know if this is just someone Trey Benson is. And you'll notice I haven't brought this up about many many players, and I won't bring this up about many players, but I do listen to interviews from time to time. I have not listened to interviews from everybody in this class or in in this analysis, but I have listened to uh, Trey Benson, and Trey Benson is one of the more impressive interviews that I've listened to over the last three years. Uh, I think he understands what he's been through and what he's gotten out of it. I think he understands uh, what his position means I, you know, in terms of the team. I think he understands uh, what his role is and what when it comes to like when to ask for more and when to take when you're given, for lack of a better phrase. It just seemed like he was somebody who had perspective, I guess is the best way to put it. 
Um, and so that was just that was just a very impressive interview to me. Um, and so I do think uh, if if teams like the knee, I think teams are going to gravitate to Benson again. That's not the reason he's ranked highly, you know. Um, if he wasn't, you know, he, he's top two without that. But I do think it's important to point out because running back is this important. There's this position where it's important to be given the ball. And so if Trey Benson impresses things upon people, that you know, it, it increases the chance most likely that he will be given the ball because you know. I do think he has slightly better tools than my my second running back uh, here, which is which is Jonathan Brooks. I think he's more explosive uh, in general than Brooks. Brooks was actually excellent a, as well at forcing missed tackles. So they both score. Uh, the the area that I would say that they both score the highest would be collectively balance. And Brooks probably checks more boxes, uh, at least from, uh, you know, especially if you're excusing the fact that he did not produce in the first two years, which is fairly excusable because you consider that the two running backs ahead of him were B. John Robinson and Roshan Johnson, who could both feasibly be NFL starters next year. Uh, so, so from a production uh, standpoint, outside of those first two years, he was elite when he was healthy and starting, uh, you know, this season. And aside from that, the pass work was really starting to increase right before he got injured, right? So in his final five games, even though he had a goose egg, he had a zero in one of these five games, he had 20 receptions for 199 yards. So that five-game pace uh, would exceed, for example, the receiving output that Jameer Gibbs had in his final year at Alabama. Playing five games is obviously different than actually having those numbers you know pace pace and production are different things it's impressive that you have the pace but it's more impressive when you actually do the thing um, but it's just important to point out that that is the kind of volume he started seeing and having success with in the Texas offense, especially when pass catching is such an important thing in the running back position. And frankly, just thinking about this now is something that probably should have been brought up a bit more in the scouting notes up front. You know, I was thinking about it more from the perspective of the NFL, but talking about the scouting notes, but obviously pass catching is a big deal individually uh, to how you're projecting a running back. Jonathan Brooks does surpass Trey Benson in that regard. And then uh, one final note, uh, Jonathan Brooks is also one of the youngest prospects I have ever evaluated. Braylon Allen, who will be the next person I talk about, will get all the he- uh, all the headlines because he's very young. He's even five, six months younger than Brooks is. Uh, but I have met 2101 on my list, which basically means uh, 21 years, one month, rounded to the nearest month of September, on September 1st of his draft year. So he's basically going to turn 21 about a month, a month and a half uh, before September 1st uh, of this year. So that makes him one of the, I believe, six youngest players that I have on my age list. Uh, I do know that the only player other than Allen that is younger than 2101 was Israel Abanaconda from last year, who was uh, 20 years, 11 months. And and that kind of does transition me a little bit uh, into Braylon Allen. Now, I do want to make one thing clear at this point. I made one ranking list since the January 15th deadline where the class became official, uh, and I did not rank any running backs outside of the top two. I put all the guys I'm about to discuss 
in the same tier, and that's just because right now I, I frankly find that I have a bit of a lack of conviction in this class. There are two guys in particular that it feels like the market has conviction on, and I just do not share that conviction right now. Uh, potentially, I will get there uh, if the if the NFL consensus agrees, or at least you know the team bidding highest on them agrees. That will obviously quickly change my tune, as discussed with the draft capital discussion earlier, but you know, the, the big two players are obviously going to be uh, Braylon Allen of Wisconsin and Blake Corum of Michigan. Um, so as I just mentioned, Braylon Allen, youngest player I have ever evaluated in three years, 100 players, and he is the youngest, not just the youngest, but he is four months younger than the youngest, um, which is pretty insane from an outlier perspective. Uh, like, because even... Like, the older ones, they make sense, right? Like, someone goes, plays plays college baseball for a couple years, or someone is a member of the Church of Latter-day Saints and goes and does a mission for a couple couple years uh, before they attend BYU, typically speaking. You know, the, these things happen more often to push outliers. It, it's it's wild that he was 17 years old starting at the University of Wisconsin. And I think that is why he has so much credibility and, and love and positivity. And as someone who loves college football, I share that. And I shared that throughout his college tenure. But I also always was looking for the next step, right? He put up like 1,200 yards in his first year, and then he basically did the same thing in his second. And a lot of people talk about how productive he is. And that is fair to an extent because, you know, I mean, I don't want to sneeze at having about 100 yards a game, uh, especially at, at his age. But the peak season was nowhere near, in my opinion, what I look for in a peak season from a running back. And it's hard for me to to project that, especially at the running back position where players peak at such a young age. I also think it's important to point out in the perspective of the ultra-productive Wisconsin running back history that players that have had high draft capital, at the very least from Wisconsin recent memory or recent history, recent-ish memory, like Jonathan Taylor, Melvin Gordon, and Monte Ball, those guys had 2,000-yard seasons and 20-plus touchdowns, and even substantially more than that, right? Like, Monte Ball had 2,200 yards and 39 touchdowns as a true junior. Uh, Not a Wisconsin running back, but people often consider A.J. Dillon to be the low-end comparison comp, like do you think he could be as bad as A.J. Dillon as if he couldn't be worse, frankly, which is certainly possible as well? I'm not saying he will be, um, but A.J. Dillon was closer to 1,500-1,600 yards a season uh, playing for Boston College uh, to where, you know, Allen, again, in that 12-13 range. So, you know, more specifically, it's it's not the production that worries me, again, because this is a traits-driven position. It's, it's more about I just don't find the archetype translatable because of things like agility, change of direction, top end speed, you know, things that have really proven to be more and more important as the game goes on. Um, This also includes pass catching. You know, it, it... it's interesting to see how people react to the pass catching of Braylon Allen because I understand from an analytical perspective that getting more receptions is just a positive general sign in a lot of models and metrics and whatever predictive correlations. 
as someone who wat- who believes in those things but also watched the games, Braylon Allen was consistently un- not successful on his receptions. He caught the ball, but the proportion of yards compared to, say, the down and distance was constantly an unsuccessful play. That, that happened consistently, especially in those first two games where he was given the ball a lot. He was basically never having a successful play uh, in those first two games. And so that's, you know, as someone who's watching these games, there's so many people who are telling me, wow, it's so awesome. He's getting 15 receptions. And I'm watching these games going, to me, he's kind of proven what he can't do more than what he can do. Because as much as he is catching the ball, the transition from the catch to the run and the change of direction and the agility, something is not jiving to the point where even against lower level competition, he's not turning these into anything. And so there's also my concern was watching him in this new system and, you know, early on games, Ches Malusi's coming out and he's playing as much, if not more than him. He's running just as well, if not better. And maybe that's just Braylon Allen had a slow, you know, ramp up into the season. I don't know. But it was it was bothersome because I come into the season having these concerns about what Braylon Allen will be in the NFL. And then those things start to manifest early in the season at Wisconsin, which is obviously nowhere near as uh, high stakes or high talent as the NFL. So when I see these things manifest that I'm worried about in college, it makes me really worried that the concerns I have in the translation to the NFL game are not unfounded. So that is why I have Braylon Allen lower. I just don't think he is as explosive uh, or I, I don't think he, he moves as well. I don't think he uses small bits of leverage as well uh when he's when he's faced up against a tackler you know he he kind of he does lower his shoulder and go straight at them but there doesn't seem to be much manipulation of angle or or things like this that can really help that the guys like Brooks and Benson do a whole lot better that that make me think that they're going to be able to translate better at the next level. Plus I think their first steps, well, I think Benson's first step in particular uh, is, is a bit better as well. I won't spend as much time on Blake Corum, especially because Blake Corum is far more simple. I don't know. And I know some people are going to be bothered by this, but I don't know what he's going to measure at. I don't know what his height's going to be. I don't know what his weight's going to be. I don't know how fast he is. And those things are going to be a bit of a concern because Blake Corm is not going to be in a good area for any of those things. We all, we all know that. It's just how bad is it going to be? How many historical comparisons are we going to have? You know, is it going to be just Devin Singletary or maybe somebody else? Is it going to be worse than Devin Singletary? Because Devin Singletary is, you know, around a 5'7", fairly well-built running back who's not the fastest guy and then on top of that Blake Corm is a fairly older running back prospect he's around the 23 and a half age I believe in the September 1st point and he wasn't as good this year as last year which maybe that's returning from the injury I know the touchdown count is huge uh, but there weren't nearly as many explosive plays or big plays or juiced up runs that we saw from Blake Corum in the 2022 and 2021 seasons even. Uh, so, you know, I do like Blake Corum. I do like 
the 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 film in general. Uh, the one thing I've said a few times about Blake Corum too is that uh, Blake Corum I would rank lower than a lot of guys because I think those guys have a better chance of getting a role. Blake Corum though is a guy where if you told me that a coach was going to have faith in him for 250 touches, I might like him more than some other guys because he does showcase a lot of the the small things that can drive consistency, you know, in the same way that Kyron Williams has a lot of the small things that can drive consistency and can make him extremely effective when he has that kind of coach that's just willing to to back him and put the faith in him and, and go forward that way. Um, so I have quite a few more names on this list. I'm just going to rapid fire with some of these, uh, really the rest of these. Um, Rasheen Ali of Marshall, huge production profile a few years ago, explosive, returns kicks, catches, passes, had like 45, but had an injury and kind of disappeared. You know, not much to say because he, he did play a bit last year, but it just, the profile really stems from over two years ago and looking at a very impressive, I believe, 2021 season. Uh, so, you know, if Ali gets somebody who's intrigued in him, there is some upside there, I think. But, you know, really just more of a player to monitor. Uh, Ray Davis was excellent this year in the SEC and against SEC competition. Uh, the one thing I will question, uh, caution about with Davis, as well as uh, Cody Schrader, who also played in the SEC for Missouri, is that those guys are both like closer to 23 years old right now. And a lot of players they're playing against is, are, are 19, 20, 21. And those are big developmental years, right? Like usually when people say he's a man amongst boys, that's just a very positive thing. But in this situation, it might not actually be a positive thing because they're actually just so much older than most of the players that they are playing against. I know that, you know, it's a little different with the COVID year, and that's also the reason why they're as old as they are. But it's still... It's still significant to me when players who put up big seasons are significantly older uh, because college football is a game that still takes place during years where people are uh, improving rapidly and even developing physically. You know, on the opposite end of the spectrum, Audric Estime. Audric Estime is someone who I don't love everything about. He's got good wiggle, good size. I don't know if he's got as many high-end traits as he would need to push another running back out of a job, which is probably why I don't have him ranked. But on top of all these things, he's also one of the youngest uh, running backs in the class, around the same age as Jonathan Brooks. 21 years, uh, one month, something around that uh, in the September 1st range. Uh, Very productive this past year, though he did have performances that were a little bit varied by competition. Not that everybody doesn't have that, but, you know, it's just... It's nice to see, you know, running back is obviously another position where you're targeting the cream of the crop, the best players, and it's 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 nice to see those players really explode and dominate on Saturdays. And the biggest problem I have pretty much with everybody on this list, not just Estime, is that they're good, but they didn't really dominate uh, on Saturdays in the way that uh, I'm really looking for a running back to do that I'm looking to invest in. And in a way that, like, Quite a few running backs did in 2023, even if that class didn't get as much draft capital as a lot of people would have wanted. Uh, so next on this list is Bucky Irving. I like him. He's fun to watch. Love watching him. I do worry about the translation. Now, I know everyone's going to like say that and roll their eyes at that if they really like him because he's small. But I loved Devon Achan and Keaton Mitchell last year quite a bit. 
but part of what I loved about them is their acceleration and top speed were both super elite. I don't see that in Bucky Irving, and it's also important to note that like those weren't the only two small backs drafted last year or ever, you know. Deuce Vaughn was drafted uh, to a situation that a lot of people saw as su- a superior situation, maybe not to HN, uh, but definitely to a couple of other guys out there as a fringe uh, potential player, and, and Deuce Vaughn didn't end up doing anything, and I think you know, in a lot of ways, Irving might be a little bit closer to Vaughn, even though he's not a pass catcher in the same way Vaughn was. He's a bit more of the shifty archetype than the elite speed demon, and so that's why I, you know, as someone who loved HN, as someone who loved Keaton Mitchell, I'm not as high on Bucky Irving as some other people are, because I'm just worried that some of the physical aspects don't translate, and I'm a bit worried that some of the side-to-side stuff isn't going to be as effective um, when he's not that elite speed guy at his size. Next up is Marshawn Lloyd, a former top recruit, significant knee injury uh, early in his career, played for both the USC's, uh, South Carolina, Southern California, uh, with the second one uh, most recently. Uh, Very efficient this year, but the role was a bit limited in terms of uh, amount of carries. He also was phased out of games, it seemed like, by, you know, the coaching staff if it seemed like they were getting behind. And obviously that seemed uh, a bit of a constant for USC this year. Um, So, you know, a a good player that has a lot of the boxes, especially physically, uh, that you check for the NFL level, which also leads to Jace McClellan, who's kind of a similar thing. Though he was not nearly as efficient and he had a lot more opportunity, which is probably why I would have him slightly lower than Lloyd at this point. Jace McClellan, uh, you know, just he had a great opportunity to lead an Alabama running back room and frankly, an Alabama team that needed offensive weapons to really take over. And I mean, I know they, you know, I mean, obviously they, they were very successful. You know, they were a playoff team, but, you know, they did not win consistently on the backs of their offensive playmakers. And Jace McClone definitely had the opportunity to be one of those guys this year, and it just didn't really click. But again, same with Marshawn Lloyd, you know, the kind of guys who you just physically can say uh, they're probably more likely to be on a roster three, four, five years from now just because of that. Uh, and then uh, Will Shipley does a lot of things well. Kind of the same thing as the Audric Estime thing. I like him, but... You know, do I think he has the the tools, any particular tool really, to push people out that are in front of him? And I don't necessarily see that with Will Shipley. And, you know, I do see it a little bit more with this next guy, which is Jalen Wright, uh, who doesn't have a ton of buzz. He, you know, he had his best season this year. Uh, like Marshawn Lloyd, rotates a lot. You know, that veer and shoot system that Tennessee runs, very, very high-paced. So that means that they rotate backs a lot, which limits opportunities. But Jalen Wright has the kind of first-step quickness and acceleration, at least from my viewing, uh, that I'm really targeting in these running back prospects. So even though he's pretty much the last name on this list, uh, I would consider Jalen Wright to be closer to the highest-graded player on this list. I don't know if he actually is, but he'd be uh, quite a bit closer to it. Um, and then I do have two more players here. They're just players I don't have anything to say about, really. Um, there are two uh, FCS running backs at the division lower than the FBS. 
uh, who I, you know, I don't watch FCS football, uh, in Dylan Laub from New Hampshire and Isaiah Davis from South Dakota State, who both have senior bowl invites. So it'll be interesting to see uh, how they do uh, in this upcoming week. And especially if they get buzz, I'm going to be trying uh, a bit harder to find more game films from those two and kind of trying to, uh, you know, determine my opinions on those two. And so that does it for everything I have or wanted to get through with the running back position, which moves us into wide receiver. Uh, Once again, I don't have any kind of transitions or production value on this thing, so I just want to make it clear again that I'm leaving running back behind, and we are now moving into the wide receiver position, which is an extremely interesting position for this class. I also want to say, you know, being an hour into this uh, thing so far, this is going to be the longest position. There is a lot I want to cover in terms of what draft capital means. Maybe that should be its own show, but, you know, here we are. Uh, and also kind of how analytics relate to the position, and all that comes before we even get into the position itself. So just, you know, to get into it right away, I mentioned this with the running backs as much as we have gotten increasingly scared by running back roles, running back injuries, you know, things of this nature, it's important to point out that wide receivers, even at a high draft capital range, have significantly high bust rates very quickly. And as soon as about pick 16. So to be clear, a lot of this data is very fluid, right? This goes back to the same data in the running back, uh, the running back section, and then a little bit more into the first round for these wide receivers. Um, But, you know, again, uh, what I mean by the fluid data is obviously to get a sample that is recent enough for anything to matter, we have to deal with players who are actively playing. So that does mean that they can change. But in, in my opinion, when you see how strongly these samples relate, you don't need to wait for, you know, the ink to dry to see what the painting looks like, you know, if that makes sense. So uh, from 2013 to 2022, I have 22 wide receivers going between picks 16 and 32. 45.5% of that group has yet to have a top 36 season. So I don't know what order I wrote these down in because it doesn't make sense. But Kadarius Tony, Jalen Rager, Josh Doxson, uh, Laquan Treadwell, Rashad Perriman, Rashad Bateman, Philip Dorsett, Nikhil Harry, Jahan Dotson, and Traylon Burks. Okay, so obviously, you know, Jahan Dotson and Traylon Burks in particular, could they still have top 36 seasons? Definitely. But that's 45.5% of the wide receivers to go between picks 16 and 32 in the last 10 years. The next group of players that are the next highest uh, includes or is uh, Nelson Aguilar, Cordero Patterson, which we can debate whether Cordero Patterson should even count when you wait seven years and the guy gets it as a running back, Uh, Hollywood Brown, Kelvin Benjamin, and Will Fuller. So that is not an incredibly uh, enticing group that you want to spend a first-round pick on. And so, you know, this is just a substantial number of players, right? We had four players in 2023 not in this sample, and... You know, while they have a ton of time, two of the four have not reached this threshold yet, and early production is becoming more and more important. And while a lot of people have faith in Jackson Smith and Jaguar, not a lot of people have faith in Quentin Johnston right now, and so he could be on pace to be another one of these 
first round zeros. So it's really that top 15 picks uh, that you want to target that has what you might consider uh, running back level safety and even the busts that are in this area have come down to some of the most extreme circumstances, right? So I think I only found five complete busts in this area and 40% of them in that case would be Kevin White who had two significant leg breaks in his first year and Henry Ruggs who was charged with vehicular manslaughter. Outside of that top 15 there is just a substantial ratio of misses so this is what you need to keep in mind that even if all these wide receivers that you like go in the first round particularly particularly if it's not in the first 15 picks not having running backs might make this uh, a class that has a, a higher risk than a lot of people are currently associating with it uh, and then on top of how soon bus rates become substantial it's also worth knowing that day two wide receiver capital is far more mixed than you might expect particularly with uh, frankly the hits that you're looking for right and it, it's in kind of the same 33 to 75 76 range that was discussed in the running back case really but uh, players like DK Metcalf, AJ Brown, Cooper Cup, Keenan Allen, uh, and others are, are strewn about this area, uh, really making it hard to distinguish an area uh, where picking a player in one area or another in this section is better or worse, even though logistically you would say that you know 33 is better than 75. When you look at the last 10 years, the only hits that occur more often in that 33 to 40 area are players like Curtis Samuel, Sterling Shepard, Zay Jones, you know, players that while good at the NFL level uh, are not necessarily players that excite you for a fantasy team, right? Like, I mean, if I offered you a first round pick for Zay Jones right now, or Zay Jones for a first round pick, rather, I think you would be very upset that I was asking for a first round pick for Zay Jones. And, you know, None of these players are a part of this sample, but it has continued to an extent in the sense that two of the players that we're most excited about from day two in this past draft cycle are Rasheed Rice, who was drafted in the 50s, and Tank Dell, who was drafted in the 60s. Both players before the 75 range, but also uh, not at the beginning of the 75 range. So, you know, this these two things are, are really important to keep in mind with wide receiver. They bust more often than you think they do, and they bust earlier than you think they do in terms of draft capital. And then once you get to the 33-75 day two range, outside of that day one range, those players, in terms of the players that are really good, occur all over that range. So regardless of what draft capital says, if you have conviction about one player over another in that range, it really does make sense to not care quite so much about what draft capital says at the wide receiver position, at least within a given range, right? So on top of that, in the complete inverse of running back, wide receiver is probably the least important from a traits perspective and the most important uh, from perspectives of analytics and production. Uh, traits are obviously important because traits influence and involve how a player wins, but particularly age-related uh, breakout age, uh, early declares and proportional production, uh, otherwise known as dominator in some circles, uh, have been consistently seen uh, to particularly when paired with draft capital help improve the concerns of the wide receiver bust rate discussed earlier. Uh, obviously, production has to be taken into context, and context is again like the hardest thing to do in college football, and so you can't just do a one to one 
ratio or one to one, you know, A to B thing necessarily. But again, kind of the same way talking about draft capital with running back. If you combined draft capital with a few proportional production and age-related production factors, you will probably do fairly well generally and uh, so I like to instead of just taking that list and running with it I like to just kind of modify it a bit uh, based on you know what what I believe on some other things but analytics and statistical correlations and, and these things that have been proven to be important for the wide receiver position are going to come up and I also think it's important to point out that Logistically, I think this makes sense because at quarterback and running back, a lot of these players and positions and roles are chosen before the season starts. The coach sets them aside and picks the starter, and while generally speaking, the coach is probably choosing the right guy, that doesn't always happen, and a lot of times once somebody gets onto the field, you know, particularly at quarterback, but even at running back, it is hard to displace them without them playing actively bad. Um, to whereas in wide receiver, you're going to enter uh, plays more often, you're going to have a better chance of seeing the field, and then you're also going to enter situations where you might get the ball, but you do not have to get the ball, and so if you're generating the ball in that situation, there is it's slightly more merit-based. So there is, I think, a logic in wide receiver being the most important position in terms of production, especially, again, when you're being smart about the production, right? Not just box score scouting, but adjusting by age, adjusting by conference as well, and adjusting by proportions to fully understand uh, how good some of these wide receivers might be. So moving on to the players themselves, similar to Similarly to the quarterback position, I'm going to be discussing Marvin Harrison Jr., Malik Neighbors, and Roma Dunze together as a as a first tier, right? So Harrison, for fairly obvious reasons, is probably the biggest name in this class and would be my 101 in a one quarterback league. Uh, while Neighbors was good and Adunze was great in 2022, I do think Harrison Jr. is the only wide receiver on of the three to truly have two elite seasons. Uh, He was truly elite in both 2022 and 2023. Uh, There's really not too much to say about Harrison. He has excellent size, athleticism, uh, extremely rare polish for a player with those two things, particularly particularly as a route runner uh, with an ability to separate from higher level corners. Uh, He can be a bully at the point of attack, and, and the only real negative is that he doesn't really break tackles, which is actually pretty common for bigger ones receivers um he is fairly solid after the catch generally uh he seems to you know move away from contact well he accelerates well because he's such a a natural smooth athlete but he does not actually actively uh break the tackles he often goes down on first contact so you know if if you're nitpicking uh that's negative but i think he's very clearly you know in my opinion one of the three best wide receiver prospects in like the last 10-ish years uh, alongside Jamar Chase and Amari Cooper, if we're talking from a you know a pre-draft or an into-the-draft uh, perspective. Uh, and so on the other end of the spectrum, though, on the, on the yak side of things, one of the biggest appeals of Malik Neighbors is his, his big playability that largely comes, or at least additionally comes, from his ability to generate yak uh, yards after catch and force missed tackles, right? So on Bruce Feldman's Freaks List, which is a piece, The Athletic Runs, uh, written by Bruce Feldman that talks about freakish athletes 
in in the college football game. Malik Neighbors was specifically mentioned for his strength and and power, uh, and so it's it's interesting because you I, I actually do think you see that core strength being a bit of what Neighbors does uh, so well, particularly particularly as a ball carrier. That said, he is an explosive downfield target as well, and the SEC production this past year is spectacular. Uh, once again, getting back to the age list, Neighbors is another one of the players on an extreme as one of the youngest players I've evaluated in the last few years. Uh, he's going to turn 21 shortly before the start of the 2024 season, and he is the same youngest of five, six players that I've been bringing up before with Braylon Allen, Jonathan Brooks, Audric Estime, Israel Abanaconda. I, I believe Drake London is, is in that list uh, in the last couple of years. And then on the more negative side of things, uh, while he has ranked very highly, uh, particularly in mock drafts, some of the uh, more expert inside uh, rankers are putting Odunze over neighbors. And, and the biggest thing I've heard from them is just uh, issues with ball skills and the ball getting into his body a little bit. You know, not necessarily a big concern and not necessarily that he can't use his hands, but that sometimes he just doesn't use them as much as he cradles a bit. So that's just something that I, I know a couple people have been talking about recently with neighbors. But again, uh, between how young he is, how dominant he was at the SEC level, regardless of the quarterback situation, and, and just uh, how how many of the traits I can point to, like his yak ability that I can feel comfortable with, Malik Neighbors is my wide receiver two in this class. That leads me to Roma Dunze, my wide receiver three in this class, uh, who is the only player of these three to not be an early declare. He spent four years in college, but he would have also been uh, roughly the same age as Malik Neighbors if he would have come out last year, which by which I just mean he is very young. He is pretty much the same actual age as Marvin Harrison Jr. within like two months or something like that. So, uh, you know, age isn't really a, a concern or even much of a, a, not a notation at this point for me uh, with Roma Dunze. It just, you know, especially since... I addressed how important some of these things are, like being an early declare. I think it is important to mention that uh, Romo Dunze is, is not an early declare, but, but that doesn't necessarily uh, bother me. Uh, especially because what Romo Dunze does so well is check pretty much every box. He has great size. Uh, he was a sprinter in high school. Uh, he's shown excellent footwork uh, in general and proving in that area. Uh, he was also an absolute monster at the point of attack this year. Uh, 21 of 28 in contested catch situations, according to PFF, is an extremely uh, good percentage. Uh, so uh, Adunze is also consistently been mocked in the top 10 picks. I do not believe any of the mocks I look at had him lower uh, than ninth. One of them at one point did have him falling 15th to the or 15th to the Colts I believe and then they updated the mock and moved him all the way up to I think ninth or or above that but uh, ninth to the Bears seems to be the absolute floor uh, for most people for these three wide receivers whether it is neighbors or a Dunze going third um, I know I didn't talk necessarily as much about a Dunze I don't think but I really don't have that much more to say about these three uh, they're excellent wide receivers 
uh, they're the three guys who I really have confidence both should and will go in the top 15 range of draft capital discussed at the beginning of this section. And, you know, there's a lot of guys to cover, so it's it's probably best to just move on to the next section of guys, which are, uh, for me, four players in uh, Brian Thomas Jr., Keon Coleman, Troy Franklin, and Adane or A.D. Mitchell. Um, it's worth pointing out that Brian Thomas Jr. is the only other wide receiver to appear in each first round of the mock drafts I have looked over, and no other wide receiver is in even four of the five. Keon Coleman and Troy Franklin appear in three of the mocks, uh, while Adane is in the top 33 picks in three of the five mocks. Uh, that's Adane Mitchell. Um so Brian Thomas has uh, had a promising freshman year in terms of just you know showing up, being a little bit productive, but in that key sophomore year, he really didn't do much, and a lot of people forgot he existed. Frankly, when you're talking about things like you know Devi fantasy or, or people who who project to the next level uh, ahead of schedule, and then he had a massive breakout year in 2023: 1,100 yards, 17 touchdowns, I believe, and he has one of the more intriguing uh, trait sets in this class because he's very very large uh, at, at around 6364 and he's extremely explosive in terms of especially downfield speed which is going to really uh, be seen as something from teams that can can translate really well one of my biggest knocks on Thomas right now uh, would be with how little he has actually utilized his size so far. Uh, really, he was used a lot more as an oversized speed wide receiver than someone who actually was using both his speed and his size to his advantage. So it, it'll be interesting to see if he you know, can use his size. Now, I am very impressed uh, by the junior year, uh, by the production, but as much as he is the wide receiver four in these mocks, he is still closer to the bottom of these four for me than the top of these four right now. Uh, we'll see how that changes, uh, particularly, again, not to make the draft capital lines too serious, but if he does get pushed up you know, in that top 15 towards that top 10 range, He'll definitely probably be the wide receiver for for me unless somebody else goes in that range. But even if he slips down to pick 20, I'm not sure at this point that Thomas is going to be the one that I personally have uh, over some of these other guys because, you know, again, while the upside is tantalizing, you know, I haven't seen him utilize that size. I haven't seen him uh, make the highlight real catches. It's, it's more just uh, the fact that he's someone who is a very effective speed receiver and does have the size whether he can tap into it or not um versus you know this next player keon coleman who you know does get a substantial amount of negativity at this at this point because his production was not what people uh, wanted it to be um probably himself included uh, particularly after a, a exciting start to the season against lsu uh where he had a lot of big highlight real catches but even with all the inconsistencies that Coleman has and he does have uh, a lot of inconsistencies you see him use uh, that size you see him use that physicality uh, quite a bit more than a Brian Thomas and that also includes uh, in the yak game right um, I think the Wake Forest game for Keon Coleman is one of the more uh, 
you know, total games, so to speak, that you can watch from a prospect, that you can just see a lot of uh, what makes them good, a lot of what makes them potentially great, and also a lot of what they struggle with. Um, in that Wake Forest game, you got to see him make a, an incredible highlight reel catch in the end zone, and then there was also a play where it wasn't schemed up, there, there wasn't a design really to this screen other than it was to a far side and they just pitched the ball out to Coleman. He broke the tackle against the boundary corner and he ran it all the way in for the into the end zone and I think that is something that is also translatable with Coleman's game because he has that power capability. There are some weird stats out there that he just he just didn't run things like slants at Florida State which is which is very odd and you would hope to see that as something that he can improve on moving forward, particularly because with his size, being able to add that that quick slant to his game is is going to be a big deal to his overall uh, translation. And then lastly, I'll just say a couple things in regards to the overall production profile. Number one, his sophomore year, he shared the field with Jaden Reed, who went in the second round and was fairly effective at the NFL level. He outproduced Jaden Reed in roughly 50% of the games that they played in together and then number two as much as his numbers themselves might not have been great there are games where you could make the argument that without the spectacular plays he made FSU does not make it to the playoff situation that they got to 13-0 so I mean even though that part particular part didn't go the way they wanted it to. Uh, Keon Coleman was a huge reason uh, that they they got to that point. I don't know if they get over LSU uh, without him. I don't know if they get over Clemson without him, even if he wasn't spectacular um, consistently at every point, even in those games. The big plays and the most important plays were uh, very crucial. Uh, And then last but not least, it is also important to note Coleman isn't quite as young as Malik Neighbors, but he's only about two months older, uh, so still very, very young. And he also has spent significant time in his life as a cross-sport athlete playing basketball. Now, I know a lot of these guys are cross-sport athletes, uh, but, but Coleman did actually practice at the least and maybe even play minutes with the Michigan State basketball team, which is fairly high level. So the point here being that, uh, you know, not not that he ever was entertaining the idea of a career in basketball, but as he gets away from spending time in that area, hopefully specialization will kick in a little bit more. And if he can develop in those slants and in those comebacks and in that consistency, I think there's there's a lot that Coleman can still do and become. Now, that said, there are consistency problems. Uh, again, in that Wake Forest game, there's a really bad OPI. Uh, there's other mistakes that are being made, uh, and, and some of them are resulting in you know him, him not being able to leverage cornerbacks in the way he needs to in order to create separation. And that's obviously a huge thing and why he gets a, you know, a potential comparison to guys like Nikhil Harry. And that probably is in the range of outcomes. You know, you're probably looking at someone who uh, Nikhil Harry, Devontae Parker, and Des Bryant are three names that you can probably throw out for Keon Coleman, right? Uh, 
Devontae Parker did have the one insane year. I don't know what year it was, but he has a wide receiver one season, but was, you know, obviously solid ish around the rest of his career. Des Bryant, obviously a great wide receiver for a long time with the Cowboys. I think Keon Coleman does have that in his range of outcomes as well. Uh, Troy Franklin is a player moving on who is certainly easy to love with the analytics. He is a very high-end producer. He has improved as a yak receiver and uh, enforcing his tackles each season. Uh, He has excellent length, and he is lightning fast. Uh, As fast as the other players in this top seven are, I would say that Franklin's game speed is the fastest, and he has seemingly developed each year uh, his feel for the position, and particularly, again, as somebody who is uh, a younger breakout and an early declare this is important it shows that he is continuously getting better and improving at this position that has so much to do with feel and and earning your targets there are concerns with troy franklin particularly in regards to his his size and his play strength you know as i mentioned i specifically did say length with troy franklin because while he is probably six two six three uh and has fairly long arms he is very skinny he is very thin uh he's the devonta smith size and the real thing that's obviously different there is that Devonta Smith had a lot of high level tape against high level SEC corners where he just obliterated press coverage. Uh, I'm not saying that Troy Franklin's particularly bad at it, but I don't think he has proven the ability to get by strength in the same way that someone like Smith has. And when you have that frame, I think there is a natural concern uh with if your play strength is going to be able to translate to the next level. So I'm a very big fan of Troy Franklin from an analytical perspective. Uh, I'm a very big fan uh, of what he can do for speed for your team, for for stretching out the defenses theoretically. And I do think he's constantly uh, improving in the nuances of the game, uh, which is why he's in that wide receiver 4-5 conversation for me, uh, most likely. Uh, But again, there are concerns, and there frankly should be concerns because as the draft capital says, all these players have a reasonable chance of being zeros. Uh, and then finally, Adane or A.D. Mitchell uh, is a big game touchdown machine. Uh, this guy has played in five playoff games, four as a member of Georgia, one as a member of Texas, and he has a touchdown reception in all five of them. He also has a touchdown reception against Alabama earlier in the season. Uh, Mitchell is not necessarily as fast as the other guys in this section, but he does have, for lack of a better word, like a, a malleability of movement, right? He he moves like someone that size shouldn't in terms of uh, contortion ability and how easily he can move uh, from side to side in in a way kind of similar to like a Drake London, uh, though even though their play styles are different and Mitchell is nowhere near as strong, but probably a little bit faster than Drake London, they both have that ability uh, of of a a contortionist a bit. Uh, 
you know, Mitchell is not consistent with his routes yet, but every now and then you'll see him make routes or, or, or run routes that are very impressive with just the way he moves w within that route. There's there's one particular whip route on a goal line. I can't even remember who it's against on a couple of his highlight films that you can find uh, that is uh, pretty impressive, uh, you know. And then it's also worth noting that uh, this is another player that I've kind of marked as in intangible plus uh, i don't you know want to get too far into it it's just things that i've noticed that other people say people that know a lot of things say uh in general it's just the fact that this guy went to two major college programs and left one and the fan the way the fan base of the team he left talks about him and the way the coaching staff of the team he left talks about him is rare like niceties are one thing they seem to still love a guy who left them and there is some um you know there's some reasoning within his daughter and if you want to read more about that he has a player's tribune article that he himself uh, wrote uh, i believe it's uh set up as a letter to his daughter but you know this is in general somebody who it seems people gravitate towards and, and coaching staffs really love now on back uh to the negative side of things, he has been a low-volume guy for most of his career. There were some injuries in there, but you know, I think about like eight games this season, he had exactly three receptions, which it, you know, it isn't a ton. And with how many touchdowns he had, I, I've been jokingly in, in to myself, I guess, referring to uh, any performance when someone gets three receptions and a touchdown as pulling a Mitchell, um, because it's just it's just a little bizarre that he has like eight games with three receptions and like nine games with a touchdown uh, in, in like a 13-14 game season. Uh, he does have a few explosion games, like 10 for 141 against Kansas, uh, 8 for 149 against K-State, uh, 6 for 109 against Oklahoma State in the Big 12 title game. Uh, but these games uh, are ultimately few and far between. And then, uh, aside from these four players, the other two players who are on my lists uh or in on my list about mock drafts uh, who were mocked in a similar range and were in at least two first rounds are the Xaviers, uh, Xavier Leggett and Xavier Worthy. So uh, these kind of make a six, but the first four are the guys I like quite a bit more uh, with Thomas, Mitchell, Franklin, and Coleman. And uh, these guys and Leggett and Worthy are the guys I'm a little bit lower on. So Leggett is a bit of an easier discussion point simply because it's largely about these analytics at an analytics-based position, right? He produced under 200 receiving yards for the first four full, full years of his career. Uh, a breakout like that is certainly not an ideal profile. And it's not that I'm unwilling to let someone with that profile uh, break out or prove things, but I like to see consistency and production against high-level opponents when that happens. Xavier Leggett has a little bit of the opposite. He had a big game against their FCS opponent. He had a huge game against Jacksonville State, who was in the FCS the previous year. Uh, his two huge SEC uh, opponents that he dominated were Vanderbilt and Mississippi State, who were pretty much the worst two teams in the SEC last year. Um, the North Carolina defense looked a little bit better to start the year, but they gave up almost 100 points in a two-week span to Georgia Tech and Duke. So, you know, this is uh, 
a profile that is is one that has just so many red flags for me from the production because even the breakout year has a lot of things that I look for in a breakout year to kind of smell BS in a breakout year, frankly. And, you know, he was solid in some of the other games, but the the games that really boosted his stats were these games against Vanderbilt, Mississippi State, North Carolina, Jacksonville State, and I believe Furman might have been the FCS team that they played. But regardless of that, it's just these are the games uh, that boosted his numbers. So, you know, he is very physical. He does have some very interesting traits and if he gets drafted highly there is a limit to how far down he's going to be able to go on my list obviously i'm not saying that i think he's a third round pick necessarily but he's certainly not somebody who is in the tier with those other guys for me and then on the other hand xavier worthy actually is a a pretty impressive analytical prospect he was very very impressive in his first year, frankly, in terms of, you know, the proportion of production he had in his early breakout uh, in an offense that was not particularly well suited that year. But despite this, I'm just, there are aspects of Worthy's play at the point of attack between his ball skills, his ball tracking, uh, his his general hands and concentration drops that uh, do worry me, right? Uh you know, he, he's a bit taller, but he is a very small player in terms of size, in terms of frame and stature. And a lot of these smaller players that have been having success recently, part of it is that they play above their size at the point of attack, at least, you know, even if not by like length or physically, by sometimes ferocity or by sometimes just uh, how they attack the ball. I don't see that attacking the ball with Xavier Worthy, and that does concern me for a guy that I have the red flags for. Uh, The BYU tape in particular, I believe, from this year, which can be found on YouTube, uh, concerned me a great deal. Perhaps it was the quarterback change to Malik Murphy with the injury that caused Xavier Worthy to be getting the ball in so many situations he was less accustomed to, but it felt like there were a lot of plays in that game where he should have at least been able to make a play or a better play on the ball, and because of the congestion from the defender, he just looks outmatched, frankly, at times. And so Xavier Worthy is is kind of the guy when talking about how I don't make too many adjustments for film, but they are kind of big when they happen. Xavier Worthy is kind of the biggest film adjustment guy for me right now, going beyond kind of how I feel about the traits and analytics of these guys, because it's just the way that when I watch him play, that he's able to get pushed off of spots, and I don't believe he tracks the ball particularly well, and I don't believe he's particularly strong at the catch point. And so for those reasons, I'm going to be fairly low on Worthy uh, compared to the analytical side of things, which might push him down uh, significantly for me compared to consensus, because I think there are going to be people uh, who like Worthy maybe uh, a bit more than Leggett if they uh, get similar draft capital circumstances. Uh, So uh, one last tier of guys I want to go through at least, you know, in in a little bit more detail, um, which would be uh, Malachi Corley, Devontae's part, uh, Devontae's Walker, rather, uh, Jalen Polk, Jalen McMillan, and Lad McConkey. 
so Malachi Corley of West uh, Western Kentucky is the first to discuss simply because he's he's a fairly straightforward player. He is a yak monster. He breaks tackles. He has some great highlight films. Um, he moves very well. The athleticism seems translatable. He is very explosive, very fast, uh, very strong. The problem is that Corley is kind of the definition of a player that I'm more excited to see go to my favorite NFL team than I am to get on my fantasy team just because he's he's been so limited at the Conference USA level, right? So Conference USA is probably the worst conference in the FBS, and if not, it's very close. Um, so, you know, it, it's a fairly low, it's a very low level of competition, frankly. And he has an extremely low average depth of target already at this point. So at a, at a very low competition level, Malachi Corley has been put into a very specific box. And usually players who are put in specific boxes at lower levels, I fear won't be put, you know, won't be expanded in, in the NFL level. So Corley is a player I like because of one specific thing, but I'm worried that his limitations that have already shown up in college may be a problem in the next level as well. Uh, Devontae Walker is another size speed freak in this class. Frankly, it would not surprise me if he had the best speed score in this class. The real question with him is going to be around not the acceleration, but the deceleration uh, and the stopping ability to be more than just a, a big play deep routes guy. Uh, Walker has uh, taken the long way up the ranks of college football. He started at a very low level, uh, moved up a couple times, uh, was in Kent State for a couple years, then transferred to North Carolina, and immediately made an impact with North Carolina once he got through a little bit of a silly eligibility dispute. Um, but, you know, the point is he is he is very explosive and he has the potential to be very explosive at the NFL level, but there are just areas of, um, you know, polish and rounding out his game that I'm not as quite sold on at this point. Uh, the Washington wide receivers, Jalen Polk and Jalen McMillan, uh, they both have some intriguing things about them. Uh, Polk in particular seems like someone that can be effective at the next level as a uh, downfield big play guy, uh, adjusts well to the ball, makes big, uh, has, has the ability to make those big plays. Uh, to whereas Jalen McMillan, I see a bit more as the underneath guy, uh, somebody who is going to run a lot of uh, short crossers and drags and uh, a couple bubbles uh, and just a guy who you're going to want uh, to get the ball on a lot of quick things. Uh, maybe I'm, I'm wrong on those two players, um, but that is kind of the way I see uh, those two wide receivers, I both see, uh, I, I see them both kind of as guys who I would probably rank myself in kind of the late third round uh, of the NFL draft. And so depending on, you know, if a team's higher or lower on them than that might uh, give me some encouragement depending on the situation they go into. Uh, and then finally, uh, Lad McConkey's appeal will depend on if he's an inside guy or can become that versatile inside outside threat. It's interesting. It might be interesting. Not that, you know, not that just because two profiles uh, 
create a dynamic. It doesn't mean that one winning out is like a victory for every player that's like that. But I do think watching McConkey and Tez Walker is kind of interesting because what what makes McConkey really successful is that concept of generating consistency with shifting your gears, with being able to go up, but also being able to gear down very, very well, consistently, uh, and in a controlled manner. Uh, Tez Walker doesn't seem to do that as well as Lad McConkey, despite being far faster uh, and far bigger. So it'll, it'll be really interesting to see if, you know, Maybe one, maybe Tez Walker improves in that area, or maybe we see uh, the counter of these two things and how maybe s- certain teams see them and or how they translate to the next level because they are kind of uh, completely different dynamics. And also uh, similar to Jalen McMillan, and I don't know if I brought this up with Jalen McMillan, um, but uh, these two players both suffered um, from injuries, nagging injuries throughout the year. So uh, that's just something to keep an eye on in regard so their draft stock as it might you know just negatively affect the way they're perceived uh, as they did not have the greatest season because of those injuries uh, and then I, I did just have a few last names you know not people I want to talk about too much simply because of how many players have already been discussed uh, you know but uh, Jacob Cowling of Arizona great college player not sure if he's translatable uh, at the next level uh, Brendan Rice somebody that a lot of people talk about uh, excellent tools excellent physical capability it's just really hard for me to believe in somebody who frankly just didn't do more with Caleb Williams uh, Aeneas Aeneas Smith is someone I actually like a touch and don't see too many people talking about but again he, he's more like a Corley and he has special teams value too so like he's a guy who i'd be probably more excited for my nfl team to get than my fantasy team to get but you know i i don't like to completely ignore those players because if i say someone's a good football player and they play a fantasy position i like to keep an eye on them and i kind of think anaya smith has a chance to just just kind of be a good football player and then uh, at the very end of this wide receiver list I have Roman Wilson of Michigan who uh, excellent downfield speed but just not someone I am super confident in a production towards a high volume role Uh, so that basically concludes the major fantasy positions you know I, I obviously will talk about tight end for a bit as we move off a wide receiver um but obviously tight end is uh you know, its own thing, and, and there's going to be far fewer players to talk about in that capacity. I think the real thing to point out at this tight end position is that whereas every other position was this uh, dynamic between first we talked about the position and then moved into the players, the positional conversation is kind of the whole deal with tight end, particularly when it comes to Brock Bowers, uh, who who is probably the highest I've ever graded a tight end, even considering Kyle Pitts, because while there are several things that Kyle Pitts uh, was superior in, particularly physically and in his athletic upside, uh, there are things within the consistency in Brock Bowers 
Bowers and the three-year history and the, you know, the, you know, the being one of the best players in college football over the past three years that make me have even more confidence in Brock Bowers compared to Kyle Pitts. But the problem is that you know, in every other position, I do think, as I've demonstrated, that how you judge what a prospect looks like largely depends on the history of comparing it to other prospects. Because, you know, otherwise, it, 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 otherwise you're just looking at a player and saying, well, he looks good. Well, you know, a lot of these guys are good. Of course they're good. They're, they're, they're high-level athletes. Of course they're going to be good. So in order to determine you know, how, how much to pay for these guys, where, where to get them in drafts, it's all about comparing them to their histories. Well, the problem about tight end is that what the history tells us is that the entire position is a crapshoot and we don't know anything uh, because the, the two tight ends who went over Travis Kelsey were Vance McDonald and Gavin Escobar. Uh, Mark Andrews was the second tight end drafted by his team in that draft. Hayden Hurst was a first-round pick. Uh, you know, this is just how this position works. Even if Hawkinson and and then Pitts, uh, if Pitts turns it around, rather, Hawkinson and Pitts will be players who eventually were very good, but were fairly frustrating for the first few years of their careers as top 10 picks at the tight end position. And, and so I think that's just, the thing is that, the results of tight end are so scattershot throughout draft capital through what leads to success. You know, it'd be one thing if we could just say, we'll take draft capital and then filter it by receiving profiles and then you're done. But even that doesn't really work. We, we, we really don't have any uh, proven pattern to what dictates success at the tight end position. So, uh, you know, you do have to feel good about uh, Brock Bowers because of, again, the fact that he was one of the best players in college football the last three years. But on top of, you know, how often these guys do bust and how, how hard it is to project the position between draft capital, it's also important to point out that it is the only position in terms of a standard league format where a player being a top, say, eight player at the position for two years in a row is not a is not a hit right if I told you let's take some controversial players if I told you that JJ McCarthy had two seasons of a top eight quarterback you'd be like all in on his draft price because even if you got nothing else outside of that that's fantastic if I told you that Keon Coleman was going to have two years of a top eight wide receiver you would take that you would think that was fantastic you would be you'd be thrilled if Brock Bowers has two years as a top eight tight end, he is Cole Komet because Cole Komet has been a top eight tight end the last two years. And that's no disrespect to Cole Komet. You know, he's a very solid football player. But if you look at market pricing through keep trade cut, through through anything that you want to look at, including your own leagues, you know, People are not throwing first round picks at Cole Komet and they're not even throwing uh premium second round picks at Cole Komet and maybe in some leagues they might not even be throwing a second round pick at Cole Komet. So not only are you taking a position where it is historically a crapshoot in terms of trying to determine who's going to be good and who's not going to be good and then you also only care 
if they can hit the absolute apex of the position. Anything below the apex is frankly irrelevant, uh, as you know we just discussed with the with the Cole Komet thing. So, you know, uh, Brock Bowers is a prospect that I love. I play in one Devi league, and I have Brock Bowers. But when push comes to shove, I think a lot of people think Brock Bowers is closer to the tier of that top six with Caleb Williams, Drake May, Jaden Daniels, uh, Marvin Harrison Jr., Malik Neighbors, and Roma Dunze, uh, and that it's closer to a tier of seven. I think that there are more players that might be between Brock Bowers and those six for me, because as much as, again, wide receiver is also a risk, there there is just this inherent risk at a position where this guy needs to, even top five consistent or it, for a few years might not be enough for him to be a truly great player uh, worth the investment. Now, obviously, if he's top three, he's more than worth the investment, but that's a hard needle to thread that you're saying you need a player, you need a player to be top three at their position. You don't say that about any other position. If Marvin Harrison Jr. ends up being the 15th best player in football as opposed, or 15th best wide receiver in football as opposed to the fifth, that's probably going to end up all right, all things considered, as long as he stays healthy for a few years. But if Brock Bowers is a, is the 15th best tight end instead of the fifth, that is detrimental to his fantasy capability. So, you know, like I said, I really don't feel the need to talk about Brock Bowers too much. He is very productive, uh, incredible yak, moves very well. He is a little bit undersized, so we'll see how that gets scrutinized as we get further into the process. But ultimately, whether to pick Bowers or not, I do think has more to do with the position than the player in the sense that you know it, it, is, it is the position than the player because of that needing him to get into the top five, the top three, the top two uh, to truly be valuable. Uh, other tight ends outside of Brock Bowers, you have Jatavion Sanders of Texas is the big name. Other people will talk about. Um, also an undersized guy. He was uh, once uh, a recruit that more more teams wanted to play at edge rusher than at tight end. So that kind of gives a little bit of indication towards just how explosive of an athlete Jatavion Sanders is. And I think particularly on those those plays where you're uh, rolling out, putting the tight end to the flat, or doing little tight end screens, or maybe those little sh- uh, shovel passes on the goal line. I think those are plays in particular right away that Jatavion Sanders can have great translatable success. Um, and if he can continue to develop as a downfield pass catcher, he really does have quite a bit of upside uh, at the position as well. Uh, there are only a couple other names that I have listed at all. Uh, Jaheim Bell, uh, who's been with South Carolina and then Florida State the last two years. You know, very explosive athlete, a guy that South Carolina used at running back and fullback positions as a ball carrier. Uh, hasn't been, you know, particularly productive, but a, a very solid tight end overall. Um, he would actually probably be closer to fifth out of these five tight ends for me. Uh, the guy who would probably be closer to third is uh, Ben Sennett, uh, S-I-N-N-O-T-T, just 
since that one was a little uh, confusing. But the Kansas State tight end, uh, he's been listed at fullback quite a bit, but he is a bit taller, uh, at least compared to like a fullback. He's not a huge tight end, uh, but I do believe he has some potential. Maybe it is the fact that he you know, plays in that fullback role, but the, the comparison that does come to mind when I watch him play is a, b- the potential to be maybe a taller Kyle Juszczyk. Uh And then Theo Johnson. Uh, Theo Johnson uh, of Penn State, uh, big uh, projectable frame for the NFL game. He's, he's the one name this year that I've been hearing th- that I didn't personally have on many lists as we got closer to the process, uh, but it seems like a lot of people now that we're getting past the season and into the draft cycle are talking about Theo Johnson. Uh, he's a senior bowl guy, and so it's just Theo Johnson's just a guy that I would keep an eye on moving forward. You know, again, if if we're questioning Brock Bowers, all of these other guys have have significant questions in in the regards regards to being tight ends but uh you know just just some names to keep an eye on on the fourth position in the fantasy world and that just about does it for me here uh i have taken a break and gone back and listened to the uh beginning of the show the the first two hours so that i could make sure that if there was anything that i really needed to address uh, i could do that here uh primarily the first thing uh or, or the, the main thing I just need to make sure, and, and I discussed this in the pre-script, is that I kind of flubbed the data uh, when it comes to the running back draft capital section. Uh, so when I was doing this day two draft capital analysis, I broke it down kind of into two separate uh concepts which was the lower tier outcomes and the higher tier outcomes right so everything i said about the lower tier outcomes between picks 33 to 74 and that running backs do not bust very often all that stuff was completely true but when i talked about the higher tier outcomes that data was actually picks 33 to 55 and this is obviously a a very important distinction because uh that really makes it that that the target area you're looking for is uh in the first 55 picks, uh, because that is where you both have the lack of zeros and the high percentage chance to get those higher end outcomes. So while picks in the top 75 range will get bumped up because you know you get that that assurance that they won't be zeros, and if one of those picks is say Benson or Brooks, for me two players I like, they might get bumped up substantially with that assurance that they have a lower bust rate being top 75 picks. But when you're looking at that dynamic, I was talking about between very low hit rates and a very uh, reasonably high percentage chance to have like that 2RB1, 2RB2 seasons, those are your top 55 picks in the second round. Uh, So the top 55 is the big target area, but the top 75 is the target area that does avoid the zeros. So just a little bit of a difference of nuance there, and I just wanted to make sure uh, that I wasn't giving uh, inappropriately incorrect data. You know, other than that, there there are a couple things that I've listened through the show, and I've been like, ah, oh, I wish I didn't phrase that like that or this and that. But if I went through all those things, it'd be another twenty minutes. Uh, you know, please no one tell my mother that I don't know the difference between logical and logistical, and it'll all be square. So uh, that is all I have. Uh, hopefully, this fairly comprehensive 
overview of the 2024 draft class has been beneficial for somebody. Um, and, you know, uh, if you have any comments or thoughts, please feel free to let me know. And, uh, you know, I, I do, as of now, plan on probably doing at least a couple more of these throughout the draft cycle, because whether this ends up being a thing or not, I would like to get into the practice of it a little bit more. Uh, so expect something about the Senior Bowl in about a week or two. Uh, thank you and goodbye.